Welcome back to the Meet the Masters podcast series. I'm Adrian Blair. Today's guest is Neil Ampiris, Chief Product Officer of WISE, previously TransferWISE. Neilan won the Digital Masters Award recently for excellence in product management. So welcome to the show, Neilan, and uh, congratulations on your award. Thanks for having me. Let's maybe start out just talking a bit about WISE. It's obviously become an iconic European tech success story. You've played an instrumental part in its growth, and one of the fastest growing fintechs in Europe ever. Maybe just give us a sense of the scale of business that you've now reached. So we're talking now in June 2022. So I think we're a few weeks away from announcing our first set of annual results. So can't share too much. I think I can. the last set of numbers I can talk to is from the tail end of last year. Then we were moving about um, £7 billion cross-border. And our growth rate was uh, kind of north of 30% year on year. So still growing strong. We have about 3% market share globally. And since then, the business has only got much, much stronger. In terms of geographic makeup, we're a global business today with the UK, US and Europe making up about 60% of our volumes and LATAM about 20% and APAC 20%. And we're also split over, we serve both business customers and consumers. So about 70% consumers and 30% businesses. And that's more or less where we are today. Tell us a bit about that last piece, because I guess we all associate you with cheap money transfers for people like us, but you've obviously now got this enterprise business as well. Tell us a bit about the product. Yeah, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the consumer business and the uh, SME business, and then, uh, then, then the enterprise one makes a little bit more sense. So on the consumer side, that's been our heritage. Uh, we are, we're famous for money transfer, and as you said, making it fast, making it cheap, uh, making it easy to use. And that's what's driven the scale of the business to date. In fact, probably the most remarkable thing for me about WISE is that 70% of our users find out about us from a friend. And that's because we've made payments much, much faster, much, much cheaper, and much, much easier to use. Uh, We use the phrase 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, 10 times easier to use. We've also begun to move into businesses. And uh, SMBs, uh, first of all, they they started using us for transfers, but they really use our account, the WISE account today. Uh, there we have around £7 billion in deposits. Whereas for consumers, it's like less than 10% of consumers using the account. With businesses, over half of businesses use our account. And why do they like it? Well, basically, it gives you bank account details around the world. So say I'm a business in a small software company in Greece, and I've got customers in Australia. If I wanted to get paid in Australian dollars, I'd have had to previously get on a plane, go to Australia, incorporate a company there, put some people on the ground, and then I've got enough proofs to go to a bank and open a bank account there and get an Australian routing number, a bank account number into which I could receive Australian dollars. Today with WISE, I can do that with two clicks without ever leaving Greece. So businesses love this because it enables them to get paid like a local keep the money locally. Maybe they need to pay local suppliers. Uh, We also give them a multi-currency debit card, uh, employee expense cards, and integration into their accounting software. So that's been the the second wave of growth beyond money transfer. And then you touched on enterprise. So enterprise is pretty small today, but it's the fastest growing part of WISE. 
And that's where we take uh, our products, Wise Transfer, our money transfer product, and the Wise Account, and we embed those products into the platforms that consumers and businesses use and love every day. So this could be Xero, their accounting packages. Uh, we're live in Google Pay in the US, uh, where if you go to do a transfer internationally, it's powered by Wise. And we're live in over 30 banks, um, and 30 more banks are integrating us. Wow, so it's kind of like white labeling capability for much larger companies to offer it as well. You totally got it. Uh, so anywhere a cross-border payment happens, companies should be using WISE as we should be the fastest and cheapest option out there. And it's funny you say white label. Uh, we thought the demand would be for white label, but almost always it's being co-branded. And that's because... Uh, companies trust our brand and their end users trust our brand because our brand stands for cheap, transparent, fast, reliable money transfers and they want the wise brand within their product. Totally makes sense. If I can maybe take you back in time a bit, you started out actually not as chief product officer but in the growth team yep. running growth for wise. You obviously did that incredibly successfully. I think you were telling me before we started recording one of the things and the first things you did was just speak to your users and understand what made the business grow. Can you tell me a little bit about why you did that and what sort of thing you learned? So I met uh, Tarvit and Christo, I think, back when it was just Tarvit and Christo, uh, when they were the whole company, which was uh, about 12 years ago. And I was introduced to them by uh, an angel investor. Actually, it was the founder of eBury who introduced us. He said, you should meet these guys. They've got an incredible product, but they have no customers. And maybe you can help them find some customers. I remember meeting Christo, and I think in our first meeting, we launched Google Ads for Wise, and nothing happened, meaning like, we got a few clicks, we got a few customers, it didn't explode. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one is, because we were so cheap, we couldn't afford to bid as much money as the more expensive competitors out there. So because our product's USP was being cheap, we were priced out of the market. This was a tough problem to solve. And the second bigger one was people didn't know they were being ripped off by cross-border money transfer fees because banks hid the fee in the exchange rate. And when you go to Barclays and you see the rate, you don't think it's being marked up, like, say, with Western Union, where you're kind of guessing it's being marked up. But the Barclays rate is marked up by 5%. And so customers are also unaware. So it was around this time we decided we should double down on word of mouth as our driver of growth. So as you alluded to there, it became, how could we build a product that's so good that people would recommend it? We started with this tool called Net Promoter Score, which literally is you ask your customers, would you recommend us to a friend? And we analyzed this to understand what are the drivers of recommendation and what are the drivers of detraction when people don't recommend? And through talking to customers, the message came through very strongly. Make it faster, make it cheaper, and make it easier to use. So that was really clear from customers. The hard part, which is what I spent their last 10 years doing, is figuring out how to make it faster and how to make it cheaper and how to make it easier to use. This is, when you put it like that, I mean, it's clearly a sort of marketing issue challenge, and it's also product challenge. Tell us a bit about, you know, you've seen that from both sides. How, how do those teams work together? How should they work together to make that happen? 
It's a really good question. Um, so I've worked with many early stage uh, startups, and I, I get introduced to founders, and they're like, uh, "Help me, help me grow my business! Like, teach me the ma- magic of uh, SEO or <laughs> or paid search." And um, ultimately, I, I think this marketing thing is a bit of a distraction at early stage. Um, when you're early in a startup, your most precious resource is your time. And every minute you're spending trying to get a marketing channel to work, you're not focused on getting the product to be better. Marketing is definitely important, but it's the cherry on the top of the product. And getting the product to be great just helps helps marketing be much, much more effective. The other challenge I've learned painfully with marketing is... Uh, there's no infinitely scalable marketing channel. So let's just step back and explain that. So there isn't a form of marketing where, say, one month I put one pound in, I get one user. Next month I put three pounds in, I get three users. The month after that, I put a hundred pounds in, I get a hundred users. As you spend more money, you get less users over time. And the curve kind of tails off. And I've worked in plenty of startups as, as the marketing spend becomes less effective, the kind of company descends into finger pointing uh, between product and marketing. So I think the reality is... Yeah, mark- it's always the CMO's fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the CMO yeah. blames the product, the product blames the, the CMO. And so having kind of played both jobs here, I kind of had the, had the buck stop with me. But um, ultimately, that's the reality of marketing. It can help and it definitely can help amplify a great product, but it's not going to solve all the growth problems. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, Google in the early days. You know, we, we grew at a crazy pace for precisely the reason that you know our product was many, many, many orders of magnitude better than, than anything else. And we didn't really think about marketing. It wasn't really a thing until much later in, in, in the company's journey. But I'm interested in what you just said about how marketing can kind of top spin that. So, you know, if you've got your product right and you've got product market fit, what can marketing do to to drive that even faster without the diminishing returns or getting in the way? Yeah, I'm incredibly proud of what our marketing teams have done here at Wise. If you think about it, 10 years ago, our price was 0.5%. It's now 0.3%. So our marketing teams have had 40% less money to spend. But 30% of our users have come in through marketing 10 years ago and 30% of our users came in through marketing this year. So this is when like, we're now close to requiring about, I think last public number was about 700,000 users in a quarter. And 10 years ago, it was about you know 1,000 users. So we've managed to scale marketing massively to hundreds of thousands of users with less money. How have we done this? I think there's uh, two different flavors here. One is um, on the organic marketing side and the other is on the paid side. On the organic side, I think is where we or our team has been the most innovative. We doubled down on SEO pretty early. And now today, if you do a search for uh, what's the I, the bank code for my Bank of America account or how much does it cost to send money with Western Union to Singapore? Or uh, how can I use an ATM in Turkey? Uh, or how do I get paid as a freelancer? Wise turns up there. And Wise doesn't just turn up as the first result. Uh, it's uh, The second and the third will be a Wise affiliate. And the fourth and the fifth will be a, a site that we bought as well. And we've also got news sites as well that, that push out news around this as well. So there's been a kind of a, a systemically like building... Go ahead, Google are listening to this show. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's uh, there's nothing wrong with it where the way google works is uh 
Google's just looking for the the best article on the internet uh, for uh, answering these questions. We've got a team that's close to 100 that are writing the best articles on the internet to help customers with these problems. So that's that's been one part of it. And then just covering the paid side, this is much more difficult because every quarter they have to come to work and if you're in the Facebook team or in the SEM team and try to find an, a new way to find more users with less money. And each each quarter when I look at what they do, it's uh, it's some new hack or a new technique they've found which uh, somehow keeps delivering results. There's a great book on that called You Ask, We Answer. I strongly recommend it. It's from a dude who sold fiberglass swimming pools. It's a totally random thing, but that concept of having the best content to everything that people are asking, it's universal, I think. Tell us about how you solve the sort of classic challenge that all product teams have of how to structure yourselves. How do you work with engineering? Um, How do you work with the rest of the business. Um, I'd love to learn more about your kind of internal wiring at WISE. So this was a a lot simpler 10 years ago when we had just, say, two teams. One team was called Team Grow Quickly. Another team was called Don't Screw Up. (laughs) I'm I'm not even uh, exaggerating. So the Don't Screw Up team managed the operations side and the Grow Quickly team tried to find more customers. Every quarter, the teams would write down their plans and they'd share it with the whole company. And then they'd lock their plans in, they'd execute for the quarter, and then they'd do a retro and share it again. So this worked well. Uh, over time, the growth team split down into multiple smaller ones, and the operational team started to split down. And we still had every quarter, the whole company got together and listened to the plans and fed back. By the time we got to about 30 teams, every team had about five minutes to share its plans. And so this thing this thing wasn't scaling. So it was about this time we moved to the model we are today where we're organized. So we have 500 engineers today and about 300 people across product analytics, design and sales. And these combined are our product teams and they're about 70 teams. And we're organized into tribes. Each tribe's got about uh, 120, 130 engineers in it. One tribe is regional expansion, taking wise to new markets. Another is financial crime fighting and support. That supports the tooling that our um, 2,000 operational agents use every day. Another tribe manages our global products. So this is kind of how we're structured. Within the tribes, we have squads. And within the squads, we have teams. The power and the leverage within the organization is at the squad level. So within our global products tribe, we have a wise transfer squad that looks after the transfer product, a wise account squad that looks after account, wise business, and wise platform. These squads kind of set strategic direction for their products and, and set strategic direction for the teams within their domains. The other fun part uh, about our structure is um, we have what I call multipolar leadership. So each squad will have a product director, an engineering director, and a design director. And between the three of them, they lead the squad. And reporting up to them uh, within each team will be a product manager and an engineering lead and a design lead. So this works well because it ensures collaboration at all levels of the So you effectively have three leaders of every squad. There isn't some yeah. secret hierarchy between them. Yeah, and we try, so we've run without a, a GM or somebody or um, regional CEOs calling the shots. And this helps. This has helped us build the product when we get when you get the detail and scale it to the level that we've managed to do that today. 
What do you do when a bunch of different tribes want to affect the same piece of the puzzle? So if they've all got changes to the homepage or the app or whatever, how, how do you resolve those things? That's a really, really good question. And this happens uh, all the time. So the way we structure our teams is our teams own a KPI and the KPI is around the customer problem. So one of the teams is the refer a friend team and the code it owns is the referral program, but the KPI is number of customers coming in through referrals. After a while, they kind of realize that to really drive referrals, we need to make a change to the success page. Like when somebody's done a transfer successfully, maybe we can tell them how much money they've saved and, uh, and then put a link to the referral link at that point. They would then make a pull request to the conversion team that owns that code and they're able to go into that code base and make a change, but it's reviewed by that team that owns that code. And that's kind of important because then the conversion team that have a vision for their area and understand how they want to move their KPIs, they need to get this feedback that all these other teams are dependent on their product and start to get signals of how to iterate their vision and direction of their product based on how other teams need to influence it. Um, so... Some of the KPIs we look at to see how healthy our teams are are which teams contribute to other teams' code bases, uh, which teams' code bases get lots of contributions. When we see island teams that don't contribute a lot and get a bit isolated, that's usually a sign that there's something going wrong and there needs to be an intervention. Really interesting. And are there sort of challenges associated with doing things that way? Because you know, I don't think anybody's yet found a a structure, a way of working that doesn't have its its downsides. I'm interested in like what, yeah, what, what are the cons, and, and how do you navigate yeah. around them? There's a couple in there. So the one thing you'd think would happen a lot is there would be the same thing getting built twice uh, in two different teams. This happens less often because, I, because engineers are fundamentally lazy. Right? I really don't want to build something again if someone else has built it. So the kind of communication across the team, like people generally find that. Sometimes it happens, but it's quite rare. But we lose, with this structure, consistency. It's very hard to get everything done the same way, everywhere it was. It may not be the most efficient way of, of getting things done. It's harder to get top-down to move the entire org in one direction. This does happen, but it's very dependent on leaders that are capable of doing it at certain parts in the org. And it's quite hard within a team to have a view of everything that's going on because it <laughs> so much going on in parallel in, in different directions. On the flip side, what we gained, the biggest gain is you get incredible ownership by the team and empowerment to move fast and speed uh, around their domain. That's the trade-off that we've made. I can imagine. Just another thing it'd be great to get your take on is the sort of way in which engineering, specifically not product management, but engineering plays with the rest of the company. The way we did it at Google was engineers were kind of on a pedestal and you know, us commercial folks were not really meant to talk to them because they were too busy you know, thinking and coding and all that. We had Vicky Wills from Zigo on the show a few weeks back who was saying, yeah, actually they have a completely different approach. Their engineers are very much part of conversations and brought to meetings and, and baked into the team. I'm just wondering how it works at WISE. That's a great, great question. We're a little similar to Zigo. So we, we have what we call product engineers at WISE. So ideally, 
an engineer should be able to talk to a customer directly, understand the problem and build a fix themselves. And this genuinely happens here. I remember when I joined WISE and I flew out to our first engineering hub in Ukraine, and that was 10 years ago. And I was uh, chatting, we only had about, say, 10 engineers then. And I chatted to one of the engineers there and asked him, what, what's he doing? And he was, uh, he was talking to the regulator in Australia directly, uh, who is asking for a copy of all of our transactions, because in Australia, you have to send the regulator a copy of every single money transfer. And I said, don't you have a product manager who talks to the uh, regulator for you, and then you just focus on coding? And he said, wait, why would I need a product manager to slow me down? <laughs> right? So that's really stayed with me. So our product manager's roles is really to inspire our engineers, align them behind a vision, uh, help keep the cadence of delivery going, but not to get in the way between them and customers and getting the, getting the job done. Oh, that's brilliant. So you get engineers like talking to customers as, even as much as a product manager would. Yeah, totally. And this, um, we try to build this um, kind of intuition within the entire product team of what to build next. And you kind of build that intuition best by talking to customers directly. If it's just a product manager going and talking to the customers and then comes back and tells the team, customers want this, it kind of works. <laughs> but when the engineers can see customers working through it, and then as a team, they collectively get to, guys, we should build X, then it's a much, much more powerful engagement in the team and uh, less toing and froing. Uh, and as a consequence, I see teams able to move forward faster with much bigger ambitions that operate that way. And it's a much more fun job as well, I would imagine. Yeah, they, the engineers do love it, but it is a certain kind of engineer. There are definitely engineers who like to get a ticket, which is very clearly detailed on what to do, and uh, and go go code that. But we, we generally try to screen these kinds of people out at WISE. They don't generally succeed here. Another classic problem which everyone listening to this um, in tech is probably facing is how do you hire and retain great product people, because there, there seem to be far more open jobs than there are great product people to fill them. Any tips there for folks listening? So we've done very well. I think only in the last nine months now we're in the space where product directors and CPOs and founders reach out to us proactively and say, I've been using your product, I love it, but I think it'd be great if, you, if I could come join you and help you build out this bit. So this is pretty exciting that we're at that stage in our journey. How we got here partly was the product I've learned, so just being out there and people using it. When I interview them to try to understand why are they inspired to join, the transparency that's within the product that shows we're a true customer-led organization, that really resonates with product people. And then they see the transparency within our culture. So we publish all of our salary ranges for our product levels from senior PM up to product director and the competency maps of what we expect people to do at each level. And I think it's less around the details of that. I've heard people come back to me saying that's a proof point that this customer-led transparency must be there because you're, you're trying to do that internally as well. So these seem to be the bits that resonate. The other thing that has made a difference is we started publishing our product roadmap and the reason why was people thought there was nothing left to build. So now, now product people and engineers can see, oh, wow, there's just tons more left to do. And they can 
they can see what's coming down the pipe and start to get excited about that. And, uh, and that, is, that, that is the actual roadmap, right? It's not some yeah, like yeah, PR yeah. department version. No, no, version. it's the actual roadmap. There's a process that runs where I have a product operations team that takes the plans that we're working through internally and then publishes them with uh, working on now, uh, working on next, and working on later. We don't quite specify when things are going to land, but uh, stuff we're working on now, we're definitely working on now. So Yeah, brilliant. And what about, you must have done hundreds of product management interviews, uh, as in you know, been asking the questions to, to hundreds and hundreds of candidates. Tell us a bit about how you personally do that. Like, Are, are there any particular questions you find reveal what someone's really going to be like or a, a, any ideas around how you do that? Yes, I, I've definitely done a lot of interviews. I was, uh, I think I've done three interviews a week for the last eight years. So it's been a, been a lot of them. Um, I think I boiled it down to two questions. Uh, so the first one is to ask the candidate why they want to leave where they are right now. And really, I'm trying to get into what frustrates them. I explicitly ask them what what frustrates you about where you are. And what I find with product people and product leaders is uh, they've got to the point in a company where they're really frustrated with something that's blocking their growth or the product's growth, and they can't fix it. And they're running away from it. (laughs) And uh, they're coming to wise because like we've obviously fixed that problem. (laughs) And the bit I'm trying to just understand is like, what are they going to run into that problem at Wise? <laughs> and they're going to hit the same problem. So this comes across as, uh, oh, the CEO is not customer-led, or we're just focused on revenue in the short term, or I can't hire engineers. And always my question back is, well, why haven't you been able to persuade the CEO to be customer-led? Or why can't you hire more engineers? And why haven't you helped the recruiting team in doing that? Because it's that uh, just trying to understand how hard they've tried to move it first. That's usually very illuminating and just helps understand their limits and their drivers. Uh, because you, you want to get a sense of like how resilient or persistent they are yeah, when, they, when they come they, up against an Because like, uh, see our employer branding and see why this is the promised land and everything's going to be fine here. And that's true to some extent, but we still need people that will, uh, that will strive and make that even better. And then the second one's, second question is much simpler. It's just to get them to talk through something they've built. Uh, but there's a nuance here, which is, uh, something they've helped built in a hands-on way. The follow-up is hands-on means you've had to code a part of it. You've had to design a part of it. Or maybe you've written the copy, uh, or done some analytics, or sent an email out for, for on their behalf. But um, all of the my observation is all the product people we've hired at Wise that have succeeded haven't been scared to roll up their sleeves and and help when needed. And that's from the most senior all the way down to the most junior. And that we've learned has been pretty important to try to screen for. Let's think a bit about everything you did. Before Wise, I know we're, we're going back a few years now, but you did a maths degree, you worked in the travel industry, you've been in consulting. What would you say out of all that stuff you did, what was the most useful preparation for the sort of thing you're doing now as, as Chief Product Officer at Wise? Yeah, I, I do think I wasted a long time before I ended up here. <laughs> so right, when I look back, I think like, yeah, could I have done this job five years earlier? Maybe. Uh, 10 years earlier? Maybe. So just to talk you through a, a little bit around my journey, um, 
I did a math degree, so quite heavily quant, and then ended up as a consultant. And this is quite fun because I'm, I'm, I'm quite old. So I started as a consultant in the first dot-com boom uh, in 2000. And in those days, VCs gave money to consultants to build startups. So uh, inevitably, crash happened. I learned Java in 30 days, flew around the world coding startups, and you're like, there's definitely too much money here. So that was at Anderson Consulting. And then by the end of it, I was getting on to partner at Accenture. Um, I was running Accenture's e-commerce practice. And this fun thing happened uh, around 2008, 2009, where the shops on Oxford Street were launching their online shops. So I get uh, rolled out as a dot-com dinosaur to talk their CIO, CTOs through opening and running their online shop. And then they'd, uh, they'd ask me to run it. And I'd never done anything like that before. But once I ran a revenue line, I knew that's what I wanted to do for, for the rest of my life. And that's what I've been doing since because uh, that's really, in, they don't teach you how to do that at consulting school. You need everything from psychology, as we've been talking about tech, uh, people, all kinds of things need to come together and uh, marketing in order to get that to work. Those problems are the ones that I've been spending my time uh, getting into since then. Amazing. Well, look, Nilan, thank you for taking time to talk to us. It's been inspiring and fascinating to hear about how you've done things here and, and how you got here in the first place. Thank you very much for, for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Adrian.